I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Robbie Porter. He's a local builder, craftsperson, and he's the author of Concrete and Culture, a book of essays. Hi, Robbie. Hey, Tonio. So I don't think we've ever formally met. I'm certain we've never formally met. I believe I remember you from when you used to do landscaping or work for the music school or something in Adamant. Yeah. I didn't really know you then, but I, that was probably in the era when Deb Fleischman was living in Adamant, and you know her, and that's the, the closest I've come to formally meeting you. Yeah. Actually, you called in on one of my shows once several years ago. Really? Yeah. It was a show that I did with Gary. It was the debate. Oh, it had something to do with Bob Dylan or something? Bob, right. When Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Poetry. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'd totally forgotten that. I don't know how what parts you read in my book, but there's a part in that chapter called The Purpose of Life where I talk about being depressed and trying to... Um, it's just like, I've just got to do a project and see if that gets me out of this. So I'd always wanted to have a canoe, so I decided I was going to make myself a canoe, and, and I knew absolutely nothing about that. And somebody, or maybe several people, were like, oh, you've got to go see this guy, Eddie Epstein, if you want to build a canoe. He knows about boat building. So I don't know if somebody knew him, or I went over there. I remember I had, you know, it was like an 18-year-old kid. I had like an awkward conversation with him, which I assume, that's your dad, right? Yep. And I assume, I don't, I don't remember you being there. I don't, you know, that would have been... I don't know what year that would have been. I was probably 18 or 19 at that time. So as, as far as I know, those are the points in this cosmos where our paths have intersected. Yeah, I did read that essay. And I identified with that myself because I went through quite a, a lot of misery as a teenager yep. and trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing and what my purpose was yep. and, and feeling like there was something essentially wrong with me. Well, I'm glad you identified with that chapter, because I certainly spent a lot of my life in that place. So did I. Yep. I think I spent, I used to call it, you know, that metaphor of sitting in limbo. I, I spent decades in limbo. You had it worse than I did. I, I spent two very intense years that I talk about in that, and then I spent a little bit of time after college in that period. And then once I got married and had kids, then it all uh, it just got all mostly taken away by just the necessity of the things that had to be done. I, I fear that it might come back someday. Well, hopefully not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, mine wasn't constant. It 
had its ebbs and flows. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely related to that. And I also related, when I was a teenager, my father, in his attempt to help me out with my negative state of mind, my dark, surly nature, he recommended a section of a book on negative emotions, mm-hmm. which was sort of his way of attempting to uh, to offer guidance or knowledge or wisdom. And did it help? Um, ah, I did read it. Despite how stubborn and difficult I was as a teenager, I did read it, and I I attempted to work with it, but I don't know if it helped. It probably did, but uh, that was another thing that, that I thought of in relation to this book of yours, Concrete and Culture, which is is interesting because this was a project that you originally approached for your kids. I, I did, and you know, in retrospect, I'm very satisfied in my life that I wrote this book. In some ways, I feel like, you know, obviously raising your kids is the most, probably the most important task you undertake. But in terms of just personal fulfillment and sort of ego gratification, writing this book is more in retrospect than anything else is extremely important to me. And yet, at the time that I started it, I didn't see it as a big life project. I saw it as sort of a responsibility and a obligation that I wanted to do, and I thought it would be a fairly quick thing to do. I, When my kids were young, and I guess this is pretty much true for most parents, you have this horrible thought that, God, what if I die? <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I've taken on this 20-year project of raising these people in this world, and there are things I need to teach them, and what if I don't get to teach them those things? And then we homeschooled them for that year, you know, just this sort of epiphany that, you know, giving them an education was my responsibility, ultimately. Um, And so when I started the book, I didn't really see it as a big thing. I thought, you know, I ought to at least jot down these ideas, and then it turned into something much larger than I expected it was going to be. So how did that happen? How did it end up turning into such a big project? Because it's now a a 400-plus page book. Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the part I guess I'm trying to get at is that how strange but also seemingly consistent it is in life that the things that become important are often the things you don't expect to become important. And in this case, I just thought every time I have an idea for something I want to tell my kids that they're too young to really understand now, I'll just jot it down and then I'll, I'll sort of put those into essays and it'll take a little while and I'll have, you know, I'll have a little thing to give my kids that's, you know, this is, this is kind of what I've learned. And those ideas just kept coming and coming and coming. And then that project grew. And then at some point I started thinking, you know, well, this is, maybe this is just ridiculous. These, these ideas will just keep coming forever. And then they just sort of, you know, they waned away. And, you know, it's not like I don't have new things occasionally that I think I want to tell them. But really, like, it seemed like I got the bulk of what I had to say out. Um, so, that, yeah, that, but, you know, by the time I did that, it was, you know, it was this many pages long. And, you know, it took many iterations. I didn't work on it steadily always. And I, you know, I'd do some essays and then not do others. And then a new idea would come to me. But, it felt complete when I got to the end of it. So was there a point in this process that you realized that it had morphed into something far beyond just fulfilling your fatherly obligations to pass on your knowledge to your kids? I mean, I would like to think that it's far beyond that, although the truth of the matter is, you know, it's how many people will actually end up reading this book? A lot, I would hope, but, you know, (laughs) given what it is, maybe not. Um, 
yes, that point definitely happened. I, I started by writing down the ideas that would come to me, and just I just had a you know folder of different essays on my my desktop on my computer. At some point, um, I stopped and wrote what's now the introduction to the book, and you know I, I wrote that after I'd already started writing some essays. By that point, when I wrote that, I was realizing that I was creating something bigger than I had originally thought that it was going to be. And so from that point on, I think that knowledge that there was more there than just for my kids, that that also started to color my writing and my thinking. There are many writers out there that will kind of foray into that realm of writing things for their children, you know, things that they want their kids to know. Yes, it's a tremendously sentimental and disgusting field of writing, and I really didn't want to... It really wasn't what I would have chosen. It just seemed like an idea that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Your kids are now adults. I'm assuming they're out in the world somewhere. They are very much. How have they responded to this book? Um, I don't think either of them's read it all the way through. My kids, like virtually all kids these days, hardly read. Um, Mm. That in itself is just I don't know if that's just the world changes and things go on. Um, my daughter is actually back in Vermont after living out in Tucson for a year and a half, and I sent her the book at some point, and um, I remember, you know, she was like, oh, it's so nice to read this, and I feel like you're there with me when I read it, and she was reading it, you know, so I know she's read some of it and was sort of a comfort to her when she was lonely, when she just went out there on her own, and when she was just out there in the you know first months she was out there. Um, I don't know how much of it my son's read. I think he's more, <laughs> sometimes I sometimes I think he's read parts but is not telling me or is a little more secretive about it. But the truth of the matter is, like most people, they don't, they don't really read much. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, you know, as, you, as you've read the book, you know that reading has been a huge part of my life, and it's inconceivable for me to understand a world in which people don't read, but it's also clearly becoming the new reality of the world, it seems like, anyway, and I, I don't know what that means. That's a really interesting thing that that you just brought up, because I also grew up with reading. My father really instilled in me a strong ethic in reading. To him, reading was was probably the most important thing we could do in life, Yep. outside of the actual living of life. Yep. And uh, he always encouraged me. I mean, he still encourages me. He still calls me up and recommends books to me. Even though I will never get around to reading (laughs) any of them, just because I'm always reading books for for this radio show, and I just don't have time to read for pleasure. Although every once in a while I will, because I have one particular favorite author who I will always read whenever a book of his comes out, Uh no matter what. Uh But that only happens like once every four or five years. Right. But yeah, it's un- it's a bit unfortunate because there are wonderful books out there, and I don't get to read fiction mm-hmm. anymore, hardly ever. Mm-hmm. Novels, which I grew up right most of my life, you know, that was my favorite thing to read. I didn't read much nonfiction; that wasn't nearly as adventurous as novels. That's certainly consistent with my childhood, both with the emphasis on fiction rather than nonfiction, and just the emphasis on reading and books. I read a lot now online, which is not even books, and I do read books still, but a lot of my reading takes place online. 
You know, I try to think about it in a historical perspective. People have been reading for hundreds of years, thousands of years in, in some cases, or in some traditions. But prior to that, wisdom was, or knowledge, was communicated from one person to another through stories or, or other, other things. But stories were largely creatures that love stories. And now it seems as though we communicate with videos, which are another form of story. And so I wonder sometimes if that's just what's replacing writing. In fact, you know, kids these days can just make a video and they put it on YouTube or TikTok or somewhere. And I just didn't have the technical ability to do that. And it was sort of frustrating to me. And so I guess it was a little more, a year and a half ago or so, my brother and I wanted to build a couple of saunas. And so I took that as a chance to teach myself how to make a video because it seems to me that writing is a technology that most people have now, but it didn't, wasn't always that way in history. Not all, not all people had the technology of writing. And it seems to me that now the technology of communicating to other people has gone from writing to making a video. And it seems to me, in a certain sense, that you were essentially illiterate if you didn't have the ability to communicate through making a video. So I made a couple of videos of my brother and me making these saunas just to essentially uh, teach myself how to, how to do that. I don't know what that means for the long term, because there's a certain way of getting information that you do when you read that seems to me that you can convey more complicated and subtle information than you can when you watch something on a video. But that seems to be the way the world's going. And to me, reading is a much deeper experience because you're, you're internalizing and you're actually interacting with the reading, particularly novels. That's right. Somebody is doing something and you're creating images and a whole story in your head through this symbolic representation of these sounds that they're on the page and, and represented by words. Whereas when you watch a video, someone is, uh, sometimes in a video, someone is just telling you a story. So I guess that's similar. But in a lot of times when you watch a video, you know, the, the, the story is being created for you r right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And in the reading of a novel, you can actually get completely lost in it and completely dissociate from the outer world that we actually live in and become completely and utterly immersed in the world of the novel. That's one of the things I find interesting about my e-reader. You know, I use a Kindle. I think you use a Nook. But to me, that experience is almost more direct than the experience of a book because you hold this object and you read the words and you just bump your finger and the next page appears. It's almost as though they go straight into your head without even the tactile or physical sensation of holding the book and turning the pages. Yes, I, I totally agree. And the other thing that I love so much about it is it has an inner light so that you don't have to worry about turning on or turning off lights. Like exactly. Yes. You can just fall asleep and, and not be concerned about anything. And also, my Nook, which is actually probably about a third to a quarter of the weight of your Kindle, I can actually fall asleep with it in my hand, and it doesn't even fall out of my hand. It's so light. Wow. Wow. So... It doesn't disturb me. I so easily fall asleep while I'm reading. In fact, I do it all the time. I actually slip into these liminal spaces while I'm reading, and then I'll snap out of it and then realize that what I thought I just read was more of a dream than it was what I was reading. I, I've had that experience, too, and for me it's a little 
it's fascinating, but also a little disturbing because you're in you're somewhere between conscious reality and unconscious reality, and it's um, it's definitely another place. And it happens to me when I'm trying to stay awake, but I'm getting very tired and reading. It feels like I fall into that space in a way that's not entirely as comfortable as, for instance, when you just close your eyes and go to sleep. Mm. I actually love that space. Although with reading, it's it's different because I'm in the process of reading. And so for like anywhere from just a few seconds to maybe up to 30 seconds, I'll be reading in that in-between space. And then I'll come out of it and I'll go back and read and and realize, no, that was not what I read at all. So when our kids were young and, and we were reading to them before they go to sleep and when they were really young and we were reading them those sort of child's books that you read to kids, and because they were young, my wife and I were not getting very much sleep. And so <laughs> there would be times when I would be reading to one of our kids and when your kids are young and you're a parent, you know, and, and you lie down late in the, the evening or even in the early evening, it's just almost impossible to keep yourself from falling asleep. So I'd be reading to them and very tired, and I would slip into that space where I was half asleep, but whatever brain function knew I was supposed to be reading would continue reading, but it would no longer be reading the words. It would just be pronouncing gibberish. So I would be essentially asleep, pronouncing gibberish, and the kids would <laughs> to wake me awake, like, Dad, what are, you, what are you talking about? What are you saying? But, I, but I, was, I was asleep. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was asleep, but my mouth was still working, and it was still saying words or something, making noises. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I've never heard of that before. Well, it's also a little disturbing to, to be in that place like that. Now I can understand why that would be, because it, it's like you've been caught. Yes, and you're also in some sort of you know, half state between being unconscious and being conscious. If you're conscious and unconscious parts of your brain not working together at all. Mm. Conscious and unconscious parts of the brain not working together. That's, that's an interesting concept. Well, well, think about it. You've got your, your conscious brain is on some level is saying, I need to continue pronouncing sounds for my kids. And your unconscious brain is taking over and you're asleep. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm, alternately horrified and terrified and also fascinated by the, the workings of our, of our brain. So mm -hmm. maybe that's part of it. Yeah. To me, it seems like they're bleeding into each other. That could be. And I went through a phase during my childhood where I, I was slipping into that space a lot and having a lot of strange experiences. So maybe I'm more comfortable with that. And also, nowadays, I spend a lot more time in that space. Just yep. because I like I like to hang out in bed in the morning before I get up, and I do a lot of reading in bed in the morning, and so I slip in and out of that space a lot, and and sometimes you know when I when I read something profound, I will drift off into I don't know. It's not just sleep. It, it's very warm and and kind of fuzzy light, and it also tends to embody some of the qualities that I I picked up from the reading somehow. I, I entirely agree with you and, and um, experience that also, and also often find that when you fall asleep thinking about something, and for me that something is, well, it could be anything, any, any sort of problem that you're, and not necessarily a personal problem, a structural problem you're trying to resolve in a building or just a 
sort of theoretical problem you're thinking about, then in that state when you're waking up in the morning, you often come to some sort of understanding or clarity or something but before you're fully awake of that issue that you went to sleep thinking about. Yes, and sometimes even they'll enter my dreams. Like sometimes I can't tell my dream from reality in yeah. the sense of it's so close to reality. Yeah, it's... um. I don't know. I mean, all my experiences with, with this sort of stuff are purely just the personal experiences of a human being yes. without, ever, without ever studying or really knowing what goes on. But it does seem like there's fascinating aspects of our mental activity and our consciousness that take place in between being awake and being asleep. Yes, it is so, so personal and subjective. And yet it's happening. I had a... I'll, I'll try to articulate it here under the assumption that if it's terribly boring, you'll edit it out of the conversation. <laughs> but I had an essay in this book that I took out and haven't really thought about that much since then, but I'll try to articulate it here. It's probably a, probably an ill-advised thing. But it occurred to me at one point that what if when we conduct science, you do it through experimentation and you try to get objective observations or measurements of the phenomena through objectivity to the greatest extent that you can. And we also know that the observation always affects the experiment to some degree. That's you know, also a scientific theorem that you can't be a completely neutral observer. There's always, you know, when you get to theoretical physics or whatever, there's all, you know, your observation of the photon affects where the photon is, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, that's science and, and objectivity. What if there is some sort of subjective force, like the force of consciousness, that is out there in the world and can maybe not communicate, but maybe interact with other consciousnesses. But it's because it's entirely a subjective force, there's no way to make an objective measurement of it. There's no, it's, it's, it's beyond the realm of science. It's, it's subjectivity. I don't know. I, I, I've, I've, I've already lost the thread so much that I, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll abandon this. I love that. I see the whole universe as being that. Like, the universe itself is like, this whole irreducible equation, in a sense, you know, in, in mathematical terms, or it's a it's an irreducible pattern, and because it's irreducible, it, it's a whole thing containing everything. It's not even a pattern, and I think it relates to what you're saying. And consciousness, well, what you were describing, I think, totally connects to what you were saying earlier about the way science recognizes that there's no such thing as objectivity in experimentation because as soon as you're observing something, you're not only participating in it, but you're affecting the object. Right. The subject is altering the object. So subjectivity is altering objectivity. And it relates to that earlier thing of, you know, when we slip into those liminal spaces there's this liminal effect that's that's happening. And you were talking about consciousnesses communicating with other consciousnesses, whether it's subjective or objective or, or however, you know, whatever the permutations might be, however we might think about them or sense them or, or talk about them. I'm fascinated by all this stuff because to me it's part of the direct experience that we're having, the, the direct subjective experience that we're having and yet at the same time I think 
it's human nature to try and kind of, I don't know if objectify it is the right term, but to make meaningful sense out of it in a scientific kind of a way? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And look at, look at the things we've been able to do with that, the extraordinary things we've been able to do with that. But there does seem like there's another realm there, too, that we don't really understand that well. Right. And I think one of the things, there are these biases in science, like some people are, are so heavily biased towards the material end and the objective end of science that, that I think they miss out on some of the incredible possibilities when we, we allow ourselves to tap into more of the subjective relational aspects of, of those dynamics. Well, and some, I mean, so many scientific advances, too. I think about, I mentioned it in a book somewhere, I can't remember the guy's name, the guy that more or less came up with the periodic table of the elements, I think he was a Russian guy. Mm-hmm. And you think about Einstein, I think it took him, you know, it took him 10 years to come up with sort of the concept of relativity. And then once he, once he like, conceptually understood it, then it was like six weeks of really heavy math to prove it. But, like, but the, the part of, like, having the insight which was sort of a subjective, or maybe subjective is not the right word, but there was a part of that that was intuitive anyway, not lineal and not mathematical. And, you know, it seems like so many scientific discoveries and are, are based on some kind of insight or some kind of mistake or some kind of accidental understanding that then gets verified with this more lineal, objective measurement. But that the, the, original, the original creation is, a, is an act of, intuition on some level exactly and there's i think there's so many people who have had these kind of intuitional or flashes of insight including scientists who probably have not found a way to back it up in any you know scientific quote-unquote scientific valid way and perhaps there are many things that are being uh kind of left at the wayside who knows yeah exactly Who who knows And and then it gets confusing to me, and I guess this is going down a rabbit hole, but you take someone like Newton who has this insight about gravity and the way the planets move, and it's essentially an insight, and then he comes up with the math, and it it works just remarkably well. It describes everything, and, and so then we come to believe that that's the way the world is, and that replaces the earlier way of understanding the world. And then along comes Einstein, and he has a different insight and it replaces Newton. So, so what was that way we thought the world was under Newton was not actually the way the world was. It was just the best description based on somebody's intuition, which was, which was backed up by, by math, but it was originally kind of an intuition. So it was essentially just a story. So Newton came up with a story, and it was a really good story, and he proved with math that it predicted the phenomena very well. But at its core, it was a story. And then his story gets replaced by Einstein's story, which is more accurate and the math proves that it's more accurate. It's also a more complicated story that I can't even fully understand. But essentially, it's still, at its core, just a story. And someday, perhaps, someone will come up with a better story that's even more, that the math proves is an even more accurate description. I love that. And I think that we're continually coming up with new stories to replace the old stories. I mean, think about how we are, our day-to-day experiences, we're gaining new knowledge, new information, new experience, and constantly updating our understanding of the world around us. So I, I think that's happening all the time. Yeah. And of course, in the scientific world, there's that famous book by Thomas Kuhn, 
you know the the history of of scientific i i don't i've lost the title but it basically saying that science is the evolution or the evolution of science is the deposing of one theory for another you know throughout time well it is i mean that's exactly what it is and the theories the beauty of science is that no one says this is the way it is they say this is the best description we've got of how we think it is and it's always a theory and it's always got or almost always got problems and we continually advance and improve that theory to a new theory that describes things better but in the end it's i mean that's that's sort of the conflict between science and religion religion says this is absolutely the way it is and we have no doubt because we're believers science says we never are completely certain of the answer we just have we just have explanations that work better than anything else, and we continually improve those explanations as we get more information. Well, that's the science that I love, but science can get rigidified and institutionalized as well. There are many people in the scientific world that believe in their own vision of what is real and lock out other possibilities. In fact, many of the institutional scientific viewpoints categorically reject all new perspectives. Right, but and then, then the question is, is that science or is that just a different form of a religion? Exactly. That's what I've come to to, to see it as as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the interesting thing to me is then what is it about human nature that's so desperate for a certain answer and so offended by the idea of not knowing for sure? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that reminded me when I was reading your book and the basic premise of, of your book, which was to uh, pass on knowledge of life in the world to your kids. I was thinking about my relationship with my daughter and, and the idea of trying to pass on knowledge to my daughter and thinking, I have no right to try and pass on any knowledge to my daughter. I don't really know anything. And she might do a lot better in this world than I have with what knowledge I've had. So there are doubts that I've had about, you know, the wisdom of my own wisdom in relation to another person and what what's possible and available for them. I think that's a really interesting point, and it's one that I think about personally a lot, because my father, and to some extent my wife, both grew up in situations in which, at a fairly young age, I think they concluded that they better figure shit out for themselves and that the adults in their lives might not understand things as as well as they could understand them if they just tried to figure it out for themselves. And that's a very different approach to life than the one I had, where it seemed to me like the adults in my life, um, while far from infallible, certainly had a pretty good handle on the way the world worked and were worth paying attention to. And I think that when you come at the world from the perspective that you know, I'm, I'm using my wife and my, my father as examples, but when you come at the world from the perspective of someone who is trying to understand it for themselves because they don't trust the, the knowledge that, that the people who are close to them have given them, you have an openness to new ideas and an openness to understanding things that a person that I am doesn't have or at least has to struggle very hard to obtain. I'm not sure, you know, when you say, when you mention your daughter and, you know, what, what right do you have to tell her the way things are, um, and also the conversation about science, you know, I think that this is all part of, kind of part of the same thing, because the, the scientists that are, that are the best have a sort of open wonder about the world, 
which in some ways I think is more akin to the way I'm describing the characteristics of my, my wife and my, my father. You know, they're, they're open to the new possibilities, and, and if they're good at what they do and, and their observations are good, then maybe they make new discoveries. Um, but then, then the other people, the more pedantic people like me, come along and sort of secure and, and, and neaten up and, and organize those discoveries in ways that make them more, more palatable and, and, and usable. Um, anyway, I, I've, I think I've kind of gone down a, several different paths there, but it does seem to me that there are these two, two different ways of approaching the world. One is trust the information that trustworthy people have given you. The other is don't trust anything. Figure it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I totally follow you with all of that. When I was growing up, my observation was that pretty much all the adults around me were completely f***ed up <laughs> and that there, there's no way I could follow them. Although I have to say that my father was a pretty good influence in my life later on and I, I really needed it. And his approach with me was to really allow me the space to go through my own things to the best of his ability. I mean, I was very difficult for him, and it was very difficult for him to be as hands-off as he was. Right. And there were times when he just couldn't couldn't live up to it completely. But I think he did an amazingly admirable job of, of really giving me the space to go through my own sh- and find my own way and not try and give me too much... Um, I don't know, like some parents really lay down the law, give strict rules and boundaries, and you have to do this, and you can't do this, and you have to behave in this way, and you know I'll beat the shit out of you if you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you step outside these lines. My father really gave me a lot of latitude. Like, even when I would get in trouble in school, and principals or teachers would call him up, he would tell them, well, if you have, a, you have an issue with my son, you have to deal with him about it. <laughs> so that was a really wonderful thing. And at the same time, um, it was very difficult because it didn't really help me with my state of limbo and the misery that I experienced because of my lack of sense of self and direction and purpose. I, I thought I, about that a lot, raising yeah. our kids. My, my parents took an attitude somewhat similar to your father's attitude of, well, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out and kind of hands off. And, and I guess somewhat we've tried to do that with our, with our kids. But it has occurred to me as I've watched my kids transition from, you know, my son is 21 and our, our daughter's 23 now, um, that it's difficult. Um, you know, they're, they're doing fine, but they definitely they're trying to understand where their place is in the world. And I wonder... And, and while, the, while they're doing that, while they're trying to understand how they fit into the world and where they want to fit into the world and who they are and all those difficult questions, they're doing that without a lot of structure around them because I haven't, we haven't, we've tried to get them to go to college, but so far we've been unsuccessful at that. But, you know, we haven't really laid down the law and said this is how you have to act. And I think that was the right thing to do, but there's a little part of me that wonders if we had imposed the structure on them, or, or and I don't even know if you could do that in this culture, but if we came from a culture in which they had to follow a certain tradition. And even if that was uncomfortable for them and it wasn't what they wanted to do, they were nonetheless constrained to that tradition. Um, That would be very restrictive and very limiting in some ways, but it would also give them time and potentially skills, depending on what that tradition was or or knowledge, to 
to continue to mature without struggling with these questions that are kind of overwhelming and that in some ways they're not really old enough or experienced enough to to deal with yet. So if, if, for instance, it had been the case that it was just not a question and our kids had to go to college because it was just unacceptable for them not to, would that have been better for them? They would have gone to college. Presumably they would have gotten an education, although I'm less and less certain that college really supplies that anymore. But presumably they would have gotten an education, and they would have also burned through four or five years of life and the maturity that comes with that. Would that have been a better choice? I don't know. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot myself. I'm, I feel very ambivalent about it because I respect the benefits and the comfort of structure that many people who have been brought up in structured environments talk about how they felt well-contained within those structures, that it, it helped support them in ways that they felt were very positive. Now, in our culture... I think there's a lot more rebellion, so maybe it doesn't work as well here. But uh, again, I think it it depends on the family environment. If there isn't a lot of conflict and there's there's a lot of nurturance and and love, then I think it's much easier to accept those structures as being benevolent structures as opposed to being um, restrictive or negating structures. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of people come from situations where the structures are damaging. Mm-hmm. And our whole country, in some ways, is founded, you know, in a rebellion against the structure of the, the British government that, that seemed like it was negative for, at least it was negative for the, the white male landowning population that, you know, rebelled and started the country. So that's definitely part of our cultural DNA is this idea of rebelling against the structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love this country. I love the concepts that it was founded on, flawed as some of the founders were. But you can't help but notice that there, there are also benefits to structure that, that we don't really get very often. Yes, yes. I, I think about that, and, and I, I think about it from the perspective of growing up without any of those structures. Yeah. And lamenting it sometimes that I don't even know how to bring the benefit, you know, the beneficial aspects of structure into my own life. I'm so unstructured that I'm not even, I feel incapable of even bringing structure into my life or holding structure or, or creating structure in my life, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, we, you know, my wife and I have both been self-employed basically our whole lives and our whole marriage anyway, and, um, you know, when the kids were young and in school, <laughs> sometimes when school would restart, we'd think, oh, thank goodness, something structure imposed on our lives. We've got work that we've got to do, and but, you know, it gets pushed off until it's late, or you're working all day. You know, it's just, it's just a little bit chaotic, and then you have this regular schedule that you have to, uh, you know, abide by because your kids are in school, and it was, it was in some ways a relief. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I dropped out of college very quickly because I realized that academics wasn't the direction I wanted to go in, even though I was having a lot of fun in my first year of college. I just realized that the debt that would be incurred just would have been a a waste in a way because Mm -hmm. I was just, for me, college was 
a fun ride. I was doing the things I, I enjoyed doing. I dropped all the classes that didn't interest me and I just pursued the ones that did interest me. And I realized that it wasn't a fruitful endeavor in terms of moving on with my life. But you, from reading your book, you had a, a fairly classical college education. More than fairly classical. I mean, talk about structure. I, I spent those two very miserable years after high school you know, I did a bunch of different things that you've read about in there, but I was very unhappy. And I eventually, when I decided to go to college, I ended up going to this college, St. John's College, and talk about structure. There are no electives. You know, you have your class. They assign you, you know, there are, there are no electives, and everyone takes the same course. And the course is uh, structured around, you know, the quote-unquote great books of the Western world. This college has two tiny little campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe, and there will be several classes, you know, uh, freshman mathematics, you know, there'll be five or six freshman mathematics classes, but they're all studying uh, Euclid's geometry, you know, they're, they're, everybody's studying the same thing. There's, there's absolute, complete structural rigidity. And on top of that, you've got the rigidity of being in an academic program. And frankly, you know, I was miserable before that. I went to college, I was in this beautiful place, I had a girlfriend, I had friends my age around. It was wonderful. I, I loved it. Um, I was frustrated with it at different times. But it was a you know it was a great part of my life, and that's a perfect example of the benefit of structure. I got a great education in classics, sort of inadvertently because I was engaged in this structure. I had no opportunity to take elective classes or do anything else, but it was a much more enjoyable life than I'd had before that, and so I continued with it in that structure and and benefited with this education as a result, which was not I was just desperate to do something that wasn't as unhappy as what I'd been doing. So it wasn't like I was trying to get a college education, per se. I was just trying anything. Yeah, you kind of lucked out in a way. I did. I did. I didn't, I didn't realize that until, until years later, really. And I, 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 the, the, the effects of that education you know, are, are still with me today. Yeah, I'm envious of, that, of your studies, of what you studied and, and the education you got, because I, I didn't take the time. You know, I've read a lot in my life, but I did not, I did not dedicate myself to, to studying those the classics that you studied, and I think there is a lot of value in those foundational classics. There was, and there's a lot of a lot of shit that I read that I either didn't understand or wasn't interested in, or certainly would never have read voluntarily. But I had to read it because I was in the structure. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, in my case, you know, I happened by chance in that college. But had I chosen a college thinking about, well, what college do I want to go to and what things do I want to study and what career do I want to have, I certainly wouldn't have ended up there. I just more or less ended up there because my mother had gone to the same school, you know, 25 years earlier. And so when I applied to colleges, that was one of the ones I applied to. And then when it came time to decide, I was just, you know, it was like it wasn't in Vermont. And I figured, what the hell, I'll give this a try. It had really nothing to do with what the college was itself. It had everything to do with just wanting to get away from the life I was in and try something different. And I completely accidentally received a great education as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the same motivation going to college. I just wanted to get the McF*** out of here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, And I just saw college as a stepping stone out. And also, I also wanted to avoid entering into the quote-unquote real world of having a job and, and all of the heaviness of, of those responsibilities, having to make earn a living and becoming a wage slave, essentially, because I grew up very poor 
and I, I was really afraid of getting trapped in that life because I saw the effect it had on my parents, or especially my father. The, the wage slave part of it. Yeah. 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 Not having any time or energy, or having very little in the way of time and energy to devote to one's own life. Yeah, I have to say that's, you know, that's another... When I was making a living making furniture, and my wife was doing her craft business, you know, we, we were always struggling for money. And since I changed from that to these hydroelectric business we're in now, which kind of grew out of the solar insulation business that we were doing, and there's more money and less work, it's definitely a life improvement. There's no denying that more money, at least up to some point, makes your life better because it, it allows you time to explore the things you're interested in and alleviates the, the constant frustration with money. And when I look back, a lot of this conversation is revolving around parents and children, which I guess is totally appropriate given the book. But, you know, I look at my parents. They were both raised in small-town America, my mother in Ohio, my father in Alabama. And they wanted, I think, what they wanted was to live in a place in the country where they would not be surrounded by people and where they would have the freedom to be some sort of farming, some sort of connection to the land, some sort of freedom from the sort of provincial parts of small-town American life. And, of course, you love your kids, and you try to give to your kids what you felt was lacking in your own childhood. And so they raised us in the way that I think they they wish they'd been raised or, or feel they wish they'd been raised. And so when we were raising our kids, you know, I looked at the things that had been difficult for me in my life, making money. So we didn't encourage the value of money as a, as a life objective necessarily, but we did kind of point out to our kids that, like, this is the problem you've got to deal with, so it's good to understand. Because I, I, really, I really didn't understand about making money at all when I was a young adult. And so our, our kids seem much more capable in that regard than I was when I was their age. But it also makes it apparent that having corrected what I saw as a difficulty in my childhood in my kids, I'm sure now they're going to have, and, and seeing that my parents corrected what they thought was a difficulty in their childhood, you know, I don't know what the problem is my kids are going to have to deal with now, but it'll, it'll obviously be something that I totally didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they get to live out their own, their own trajectories. And, and their own struggle with whatever deficit in your own childhood you correct or try to correct for your kids, you just leave them a corresponding deficit in some other place. Thinking back, I think that's why my father gave me so much space, because his life was so much more structured in ways that were out of his control, confining, perhaps destructive, or or however it was. Um, I grew up in New York City, and then we moved up here. So we went we went from concrete jungle to the woods and it was a radical shift but again I think my father wanted to create a a completely different life that he found very unsupportive he was an artist and but it was very difficult for him he I think he was too sensitive for the the cutthroat environment Mm -hmm. even even in the artistic world Mm -hmm. in New York City. So he he wanted to get out, and I got the benefit of that. How old were you when you moved up here? I moved up here just in time to start ninth grade at U32. Wow. The first year that it opened. Okay, so I, for some reason, I'd assumed you were younger than me. 
<laughs> but you're you're actually older than me. Wow! So you were there in the you because <laughs> I caught the I caught the tail end of the open classroom out of school at twelve o'clock on Wednesday stuff when I went to U thirty two. But you were you you got the the full benefit of it. Yeah, I I might actually have been part of the cause of their clamping down on their open system. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I in my senior year I I kind of they thought I abused it because I I had scheduled my senior year all my classes so that I I only had classes on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> and so I didn't come in. I didn't come to school on Tuesday and Thursday. So literally every single day that I went to school there would be this announcement on the loudspeaker for me to go to the office. And they would say, hey, where were you yesterday? And I'd say, I was at home. I didn't have any classes. And they said, well, you still have to be here. And I said, no no way am I coming here if I don't have any classes. <laughs> so we had this battle. And they said, well, we're not going to allow you to graduate if you don't come to school. And I said, like hell you are. Because <laughs> uh, at the time I was I was doing this this very intensive study of the Chicago 7 trial. Uh-huh looking into all the legal things. So I was feeling my, my legal oats right. and I was like, I'll sue your asses. You know, there's no <laughs> way you're going to, you're going to get away with this. I'll take you to court. And so I was calling their bluff. And when it came time to uh, graduate, I heard nothing from them, <laughs> not a peep. And, <laughs> and in fact, I, out of protest, I sat in the front row. I talked my best friend into, into sitting out the graduation and just observing from the front row. <laughs> and in, in the spirit of that, our valedictorian um, gave this scathing, scathing valedictorian speech against the education system and the school. And so it was, it was a very satisfying experience. That's funny. Yeah, I, I went through U32, and that was what convinced me that I didn't, need or want any more education for a while. I I really enjoyed going to U thirty two because that was that was the respite I got from the misery of my my life at home. Because huh. I was isolated. I had no no transportation other than hitchhiking or riding a bicycle. Right. So I was stuck way out in the woods and uh miserable at home. Yeah. Especially coming from an urban background where you I mean I was way out in the woods too but i just stayed in the woods i built things and hunted and <laughs> did you know the, the but i didn't i didn't have any other experiences to compare it to you know i didn't make that connection but i think that could have been a big part of why i was so miserable that huh. not having access to to everything around me yeah yeah huh so you grew up at home in the woods and you're a builder mhm that was something that i I enjoyed about reading your essays and and about your life. Um, my father's also a builder, and he he loves taking on new kinds of projects. You knew about his boat building. That right. was one one phase of his creative, crazy, chaotic life. I kind of rebelled against that because he would he would always have me helping him out with things. And we used to get into <laughs> battles because I would ask him, I would continually ask him, why are you going to do it that way? Mm -hmm. And it drove him crazy because mm -hmm. I was always questioning. Because he, he approached it as an artist. He, he didn't learn how to build because he grew up building. He got into the whole 
construction building thing because he had these unique artistic projects, kind of architectural artistic projects that he wanted to create. And so he had no building or engineering background. Mm -hmm. So his approach was, was very hit or miss. Like he would just do it kind of intuitively and just try things out. And, and he was very impulsive. And I quickly learned that, that he often made errors in his judgment. And because there were certain things, like there was a phase in our life where he was building wood-burning stoves and we would do installations, furnace installations of these stoves. And I quickly realized that he would make these errors in judgment and we would then have to return and fix these mistakes. So, <laughs> so I would be questioning him all the time and he would get so angry. Like sometimes he... He would just lose it and say, just do what I say. <laughs> what's, that's right. Now, what stoves did he make? He made the dynamite stoves. The dynamite, that's right. I, now that's coming back to me. I remember hearing about that. Huh. Um, also, working on the first dome that we lived in, uh-huh. you know, being a, a surly, rebellious teenager, I resented having to do things that he wanted me to do even though I didn't necessarily have anything of my own to do because I was out in the woods with nothing else to do, I just was rebellious and stubborn, difficult. I, I have a theory, a far-fetched theory about building and, and, and everything else, actually, to come to me as I've gotten older. You know how um, in ants, I, I don't know much about ants, but you know how in ant colonies, some ants, are, they're specialized, or, or even in like bees, you know how there's, they're all the same species, but they're different. They have different functions within the, within the hive. And, you know, building has just always been almost instinctive for me. I don't know. It's the, it's the most instinctive thing for me. The concepts, they just, they just make sense. I, you know, I have no training. I'm like your dad. I just completely self-taught. But it makes sense. I'm talking with Robbie Porter, author of Concrete and Culture, a book of essays. You know, when I talk to somebody who's an engineer who who understands this stuff much better than I do, it still all makes sense to me in a way that, that um, nothing else really does in life. And then when I look around the world and I look at different people, you know, there are people that are just instinctively, like cooking is just instinctive for them, or learning a language is instinctive for them, or um, healing and medicine sort of things just seem instinctive for them, or, or hunting, for instance. I, I'm a, I, I love going out in the woods and hunting, but I'm a lousy hunter. But I've been with people, and you're, in, you're with them in the woods, and it's like they're just talking a different language. They see different stuff. They respond to different stuff. They just, it just seems like there are more animals in the woods when you're in the woods with somebody who knows how to hunt, you know? And so my theory, my, my far-fetched theory, is that maybe on some genetic level, like the ants and the honeybees, we all get like a little, like we never, we never got to that level of, of specialization that the insects did, but maybe as social animals there were kind of genetic packages or genetic um, predispositions for certain people to have the, you know, these certain kind of basic skills, building, hunting, cooking, medicine, these certain basic skills that you need in a primitive society. Maybe, maybe we were kind of, as social animals, we were kind of starting to specialize a little bit so that there were kind of these genetic packages that would get handed down where one person, one person was more just kind of instinctively good at something and another person, you, you follow the argument I'm making? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's the essential collaborative nature of of humanity and and community building and community spirit and community functioning. 
yeah, like, you see some people, I mean, I've just never been good at learning languages, but you see some people and they just, boy, it just seems, it seems to them like building is to me. Like, the concepts just almost make sense ahead of time. And I wonder, like, is that, is that just a random accident of their genes, or are there these kind of clusters of genetic predispositions that make some person, one person good at that and another person good at another thing? Yes, and there's another thing that I'm now remembering from your book. And at some point you talk about how what's most important or you realize that what was most important was not so much what you were doing, but the people that you were doing it with. Yes. And I have definitely experienced that. I remember having you know jobs that were not pleasant, but I got to work with people that I really enjoyed being with. And that just made it a much more enjoyable experience. And then I've had jobs where I was doing things that I, I would normally enjoy, but were around just miserable people who just made life miserable. And for me, I've always felt like it's not the thing itself. It's the energy around it and the people involved in it. It's the community aspect of it. And in our culture, we emphasize so much the thing, follow your bliss, find your thing, or, you know, have a career, all this stuff. All the emphasis is on what you do, mm-hmm. and so little of the emphasis is on who you do it with or, or how you do it. Right. And, and it just seems that that just leads to a lot of misery for a lot of people. Right. And I did enjoy building things. I, I've always been creative in nature, but I was around, I was a junior in high school, and, or maybe, maybe even 10th grade, I had a summer job working on a construction crew. Mm-hmm. And these people treated me like shit, and I never wanted to do construction mm-hmm. work ever again. So I missed out on learning these skills that I was that I had already started to learn, but I just became allergic to mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. of that experience. And now, you know, where I'm living in a house that's basically falling apart, and I'm always having to figure out how <laughs> to fix things myself because I can't afford to hire anyone to do it. I have to literally reinvent the wheel over and over and over again in all these different ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. In fact, not even just reinventing the wheel, but new ways to construct something that will work as a wheel. Well, and you, the pro, you know, we live in a house that's, you know, wasn't really meant to be a house that I've made into a house. And, um, the problem, one of the problems you get with that is that as you solve problems in your own idiosyncratic way, especially when you're starting with a structure that, is falling apart or wasn't, you know, all the off-the-shelf solutions are standardized. So when your doors are the wrong size or your wind, you know, your walls are the wrong thickness or something, you're, you're constantly modifying and adapting to get the part that you bought to fit in the new space. And then and the farther you go down that road, the more difficult it becomes for the standardized pieces to fit into what you've created because what you've created is so idiosyncratic by that point that and then and then you're just you know you're just like screw it you know you, you if i if i put take a, a piece of plywood and put a piece of 2 inch foam on it and box it in and side the other side with some with some boards and call that a door and it's a nice insulated door and it was cheap to make cuz i had the materials it's also way too thick to go and buy a door a regular doorknob to put on so then you have to make a door latch mhm and i'm sure yours is a much more uh, sensible construction than than some of the things that i've created maybe (laughs) i mean 
I think about projects that I have to do, and I will put them off as long as I possibly can. And I have one that's coming up that I, I can't ignore anymore. And I look at it and I think, how am I going to be able to do this without going through the usual approaches to it? You know, of, of renting scaffolding and setting it up and just for a fairly small job. But then there's other aspects of it where I have to deconstruct something and then reconstruct it and not really being able to afford to hire anyone to work on it with me. So I'm looking at this problem and thinking, how can I, how can I figure out how to do this myself? Sometimes the solution comes to you. Our, the building we live in, you probably remember it from going into Adam, it has a, had a curved roof. Yes. And, um, it's a hanger the style. The hanger. And, the, yeah. and the, the pieces of metal, it's just a cheap metal-framed building with a, with, with a curved roof. And the, the metal, there were two big, it's alum, it was an aluminum roof, and the pieces came up and joined at the peak. I don't think that's the way it was meant to be assembled, but I think the guy who did it just must have got it wrong somehow. Although, given the length of the pieces of metal, that kind of seems like the way they meant it to be done. But anyway, so when you have two pieces of metal joining at the peak of a roof, it leaks. And the first years we were here, I struggled, and I struggled. Every year I go up there with, you know, five gallons of tar, sometimes ten gallons of tar, try to tar that joint and made little crowns for it and different things and flat up there, and when it rains hard, the water piles up there and it leaks, always leak. I'd lie awake in bed at night and think about how the hell I was going to replace this roof. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd, I'd think about, you know, the guy put it down with 3-8 plywood, and then he put the metal over the plywood, and the 3-8 plywood was really too thin, and so the nails were coming out of the metal. And mm, yeah. I'd calculate the size of the roof, and I'd multiply it by the number of sheets of plywood, and it would just be a huge amount of money, and then I'd think about, well, also i got to have the roof off the house, so how am I going to do it? I'm going to have to hire somebody because it's just, you know, the solution that I, you know, you've probably seen if you've driven by, the solution was so obvious and so simple. I did it myself. I just built another roof on top of the old roof. So I built a peaked roof on top of the curved roof. And it allowed me to do it, you know, in two stages. I did it myself. It allowed me not to take off the old roof. I didn't have to buy all these sheets of plywood to redo it. You know, the, the building stayed roofed while I was doing it. It was such a simple, obvious solution. I swear... I must have been 10 years of agonizing over that problem before I came to the obvious solution. Mm, yeah, I have roofing issues as well, which fortunately I can live with leaks. And I have I also have gone up and done patching on patching on patching yeah. around my chimney. And it took me years to finally discover that, that the actual cause of it was the chimney crown, right? which I didn't know. And then I... After all these years of wasting all this patching, which actually did nothing, uh, was not addressing the actual problem. And I have other roof leaks that I have to deal with based on the same thing, thin plywood or underlayment that won't hold nails or screws. And I think about, well, how am I going to deal with this? Yeah. But now I think I have an idea of how I'm going to put a new roof over the old roof. I'm not going to deconstruct it. I'm not going to put nails and screws in. I'm just going to use, they have this newfangled two-sided sticky tape. Mm-hmm. I think I'll try that and maybe just use a few few isolated screws in strategic spots. Yep. But uh, that's it. That's a fairly easy one for me. I have a much more what, complicated... What's your challenging problem? I have the overhanging roof in front of my house is up around 20 feet high. Mm-hmm. And it's built up from a deck that's completely disintegrating. And this past winter, it has gotten to the point where 
it's so disintegrated that there's not much space between these four by four posts that are now sitting on top of these makeshift tree logs that mm-hmm. I've replaced the old posts that were set in concrete posts into the ground, which frost heaves shifted mm-hmm. and all that broke and disintegrated. So I replaced those with these spruce or fir posts. Um, so now the the deck in between the upper four by four posts and the posts below are disintegrating. So I have to create some way to support the roof that's up 20 feet mm-hmm. above to the ground. And you can't just get more spruce poles? That My friend Gordon says that every project I start begins with going into the woods to get a spruce pole. But Well, what I've thought of was, was doing 20-foot spruce poles right. going all the way up. But affixing them, that's the challenge. To the, to the roof part? To the cross beam under the roof edge, yeah. Because you can't just push them up underneath it, or because you have to put them in the location where the four by fours currently are, or they need to, or they can go beside the four by fours, and then you have to attach them to that crossbeam. That's the difficulty. Yeah, I have to. I have to attach them to the crossbeam. They could go side by side the four by four posts. That that's not a problem. It's just affixing it because it's it's up pretty high. And oh, so just the physical difficulty of getting up there to to put fasteners in. Exactly, and I'm not comfortable with the idea of trying to hang over the edge and do it upside down. That, right. That sounds pretty dangerous because it slopes down. It doesn't, it's a fairly shallow slope, but it's still, I would still have to not only hang down over the edge, but also then lean in underneath. And then I would have to be doing things and holding things in my hands. So maybe if I rigged up some kind of harness and, and, and anchored myself so that I couldn't fall, and a ladder is not an option because it's just too tall. Well, it's 20 feet up. A ladder could be an option, but I wouldn't be comfortable up that high handling things at the same time. So the deck is disintegrated. You have the existing spruce poles in the ground. On the ground. On the ground. Yeah. Could you, do you have access to plenty of spruce poles? Well, there's trees around. And is the uh, roof load, is there a lot of roof load coming down on those 4x4s? Not at the moment, but in the winter, yes. What I wonder is if you went out into the woods and got a bunch of spruce poles and propped the roof up with the new spruce poles that you got temporarily, so you just push them up under the crossbeam so they're supporting the roof, and then you could... Well, where I'm getting to, I guess, is if you could create essentially with some temporary spruce poles essentially a lattice that you could climb up by screwing some 2 by 4s into the temporary spruce poles and then put the permanent spruce poles in place, you know, climbing on this lattice that you create. That's an idea. Um, You'd have to help me flesh out the vision of that. I've had some other ideas, too, doing um, angled posts from the base of the second floor of the building up to the cross beam under the roof. Yep. Where's your place in Middlesex? Yeah. Yeah, I'll stop by and take a look sometime. Yeah, we'll, we'll email. <laughs> I was actually hoping to have you look at it, because I've had lots of ideas. Like you, I, I'll lay in bed for hours thinking about these problems and coming up with all kinds of different harebrained ideas to deal with it. I, I kind of enjoy that kind of a thing, and maybe that's why I end up in these situations where I have to do that, because 
it's an it's a creative outlet in a way. It is the thing that I wonder about. I've heard references to this in different podcasts, and I don't really know where it goes. But I've always been very good at spatial relationships, so I can you know close my eyes and just sort of see something in my head and turn it around. You know, just rotate it and look at it from different angles inside my imagination. Like Tesla. Uh, I guess I don't know, I, and, but it, it, I've seen reference to that being a a particular type of intelligence in in different podcasts, and I don't really know where that goes or what it means. But I, I've always known that that was something that is just easy for me to do that. And so, yeah, I often go to bed at night and just build something in my head, and yeah, you know, build <laughs> mm-hmm. multiple multiple iterations of it in my head as I fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoy that process. I find that challenge to be fun and enjoyable. With a house, it can get kind of stressful. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. Especially when you have a few of those kind of things. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. But, so maybe we should get back to uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> to the original topic. Right. But I appreciate talking about those things. I mean, yeah, well, let's, um, let's email or at the end of the conversation something. I'll definitely stop by. I mean, nothing as fun as seeing another guy's problem and telling him what to do about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a nice respite from dealing with our own stuff. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So when you first started this project, was there a particular thing that you considered to be most important that you wanted to convey or offer to your kids? No, I don't think there was. I think it was it was completely broad, un, unrestricted, wide open, undisciplined. I just thought... You know, I had, I don't even remember what was the initial idea. I had some idea and I thought, wow, I'd like to tell my kids this. They're too young to understand it. I should write it down. And then, you know, that, that morphed into, into the book. But there wasn't any one thing. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a strength or a weakness of the book. It's, it's not focused in any particular way. It covers a vast variety of different ideas. You know, and nobody is expert in more than a few things, and I'm not expert in most of these things, but, but they are my life. That's my experience of life, and these are the most important things, or, or most of the most important things, that I wanted to pass along to my kids. So only that, I guess, only the idea of passing along to somebody else the most important things that you've, you've thought. Mm-hmm. So give us a sense of some of the most important things that you, you wanted to pass on to them, things that we haven't yet talked about. Yeah, let me see. So if I'm looking at the table of contents, you know, the title essay, Concrete and Culture, uh-huh. that essay is important to me. That's one facet of this book, which is the part of me that's interested in our culture, American culture, the ideas that underlie our country. And in most of these essays, there's both a personal experience and sometimes a general observation as well. And that's, you know, that that essay... I used as a beginning essay of the book because it does kind of set the stage for the whole rest of the book. On the one hand, here's this guy logging, and on the other hand, he leads to a sort of realization about the type of culture we live in and that and that our culture is on some level based on trust and honesty. And so that's one big piece of this book. It's sort of political piece, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, there are some essays that are just fun and little sort of anecdotal stories, but it's always something there. I mean, I didn't, I tried not to write anything that, you know, was just obvious. Um, I guess to me, those parts of it, the observations about culture and, and this country, in some ways, those are the ones I'm probably least qualified or least knowledgeable about, and they're also some of the ones that are the most important to me. One thing that's surprising to me about this book, and I don't know if you found this to be the case or not, but a lot of people who've read it have told me they were surprised by the humor in it 
which I didn't intend or or know I was putting in it per se, but apparently it's there because people people keep telling me they they enjoy it. Well, it's a kind of a dry humor of recognizing one's own folly. Definitely. And I find that very important to my take on what it means to be alive. If you can't kind of laughing at the ridiculousness of yourself and this whole experience, then you don't really understand what it's all about or or your insignificant little role in it. Right. It it indicates a lack a kind of fundamental lack in one's own humanity, I think. I certainly see it that way. I'm not sure I mean people who take themselves so seriously that they miss out on that or or miss that dimension of life. But the other part of that, I entirely agree with you, and yet most of human history, I think it's fair to say, has been people who took very seriously and were very certain that their opinions about religion and the purpose of life were fixed and correct. So I think by taking that opinion, we're, I think we're in the American tradition by taking that opinion, but we're also outside of the, of the history of humanity. Well, that, that helps us learn the lesson of that, to observe people doing that, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. So every, everything serves its function in a way, even if it's not something that we value or appreciate directly. I think that's true. Of the essays you read, which ones particularly resonated with you? Well, I found most of them resonated for me, but I'd say... The ones that, that stood out in terms of being particularly meaningful, uh, you're writing about Roy Haggett. Yep. I enjoyed you know, you talking about his, his approach to things, his, his intuitive relationship with machinery. Because mm-hmm. I have great respect, like you, I have great respect for people who, who have a, a natural gift for anything. And... There's this wonderful quality to this book where you're a very earthy, hands-on person. In some ways, you kind of characterize yourself as a very simple, down-to-earth, hands-on, building kind of a person, and yet you, you also incorporate your reflections and concerns about culture and society and the challenges that we are facing currently, both domestically and globally. So your approach to life is is actually quite broad and i have a great appreciation for that I, you you bring up the issue of which i i found fascinating you 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 write about your observations of racism and prejudice and this is something that i've also observed in my own way how african american slaves and their descendants had a much greater grasp of christianity than the actual Christians, the white European Christians who settled this country. And it's kind of ironic how they they seem to be so much more inclined to the harsh values and approach of the Old Testament, whereas the African-American slaves and their descendants have such a, a much more intuitive connection to, you know, Jesus' approach to Christianity. It's so, um, I'm so glad you picked that up. It's so fraught these days to make any comment at all about race, much less as a as a white male to make any comment about you know any minority. But that that just seems so true to me that the to the extent that I 
you know, and, and we all experience the various subcultures in this country, and to the extent that I experience African-American subculture, it seems as though it has just understood the teachings of Jesus in a way that, <laughs> in a way that white culture often hasn't, and it's just it's stunning and ironic that, that switch like that. I'm so glad you picked up on that. That's one of those little parts, and I can't even remember exactly which essay that's in. That's one of those little observations where I put it in there, and I think about it myself often, and I'm just like, this is so true. I wonder if anyone else will ever actually, or anyone that'll actually ring with anybody else. It's so good to hear that. Yeah, it kind of blows me away how white Christians, it's so easy for them to completely reject Jesus' teachings of, of love thy neighbor and forgive and turn the other cheek and judge not your neighbor. Yeah. Jesus is literally the opposite of white Christianity. A lo- an awful lot of it, I know, an awful lot of it is centered around hate and, 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 and division, and yes, I know, it's, it's crazy. And retribution. Yeah. Yeah. The other observation like that, that you may or may not have read, I think it's in a different part, that also seems to me to be significant, I mean, I've never really seen reference to it anywhere else, is that the structure of our country is based around this idea of a founding document, and then this continual commentary on that founding document, you know, in, in terms of the Constitution and the Supreme Court. And that's just a more or less of a parallel to the whole Jewish tradition of commenting on, on the Bible, and particularly the, the first five books of the Bible. I did read that. And it seems like, you know, one of the anomalies of Jews and of the Jewish history is that this tiny little group of people has persisted there's almost no other small group that has lasted, you know, with, with an identifiable and consistent cohesion for that long. And what it is that has sustained them is, is this relationship with this book and this constant ongoing commentary and questioning about this book. And yet here in our country, which is, you know, has existed for such a tiny period of time relative to the Jewish history, but it's been so extraordinarily successful as a, as a country, is this same model of setting out your best ideas in this founding document and then continually commenting on and evolving those ideas. It's, a, it's almost a perfect parallel. And yet I've never heard anyone comment on that in, you know, in a history book or anything I've ever read or, frankly, anything I remember anyway from St. John's. Well, let me ask you your opinion on the way we have commented on our founding documents. Obviously, you're well aware that there's a huge polarization between these literal constitutionalists and those who believe that the Constitution needs to be amended and updated the way Mm -hmm. Jefferson talked about in order to stay relevant to current times. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts about that? First of all, I think that perhaps the power is in the conversation and the discussion more or at least as much as it is in the specific policies. And so if you were to look at Jewish history, which I'm not familiar with very much, you know, I'm sure you'd find periods when the commentary on the Bible was, you know, in one direction or in another direction or seemingly crazy probably and then more realistic. And so maybe that same process takes place in our country where the commentary on the Constitution veers in one school or another school, but the fact that we have a structure, back to the structure question again, the fact that we have a structure for maintaining this ongoing conversation, maybe that's the real core of the power, more so even than 
than what the specific decisions are, whether they're Supreme Court decisions or whether you look at it as a as a structuralist or a or an originalist or whatever. To get to the specific part of your actual question, you know, it it doesn't make any sense to me to trying to interpret it through the lens of the people who wrote it at the time they wrote it. Doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't, just doesn't compute to me at all. And so I'm obviously more in the in the camp of needing to understand it in terms of you know the the modern world that we live in. Having said that. I think you can make an argument that, and I don't know that this is the originalist argument, but you can make an argument that, to some extent, as with the Bible, when these people set down these ideas in the Constitution, they were trying to approximate what they thought were some universal truths about human nature and how you need to structure a society. And so the technology and the culture changes and history changes, but those parts about human nature that were understood by them 240 years ago Human nature hasn't changed, so it, it, it does behoove you to try to understand it from that point, from their point of view, even if I believe that, you know, in the end, you have to adapt it to modern times. Yeah, I get what you were originally saying about the parallel between the two, and, and yeah, I, I like that observation. I think you're right on with that, and it also parallels the nature of this book you wrote. You know, there's an aspect of that there. When I had to read the Bible in college, and we read it as literature, and I realized that, God, these are just family stories. That's all it is. It's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of, a tribe got together and wrote down their family stories. That recognition of the power of recording your family stories definitely, it wasn't the motivation for writing the book, but it was definitely in the back of my mind when I did have the idea to write it, that sharing your family stories with your, with anybody, but particularly within your family, is, is an immensely powerful act, even if it seems like it's fairly simple and obvious. I totally agree. It's perhaps the central core of the central thread that has continued throughout humanity. Exactly, yeah. And getting back to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jewish book, I did not study the Bible. I, I've only read bits and pieces of it. I kind of rejected that as part of my rebellion. Mm -hmm. But it's my understanding from things I've read that Jews have been arguing about these things for millennia. Yeah. And they're continuing. They, they right. love to argue about these things. Yeah. And it's, it's a cultural, it's almost part of the foundation of Jewish culture, Jewish intellectual and religious culture. And I think it's a wonderful thing in a way. I think in our culture, people take themselves too seriously we're ready to die and kill each other for these things? Well, I certainly agree with you, but I guess, uh, you know, to not exactly pay devil's advocate, but to frame it in a different point of view, imagine how much of Jewish culture over, over history has been arguments, often violent, over of interpretation of the, of the Bible, and then frame our current culture wars and the vehemence of our current culture wars in the same way, and maybe it's no different. You know, here we are arguing in popular culture, and then you have, in effect, the nine rabbis on the Supreme Court. Maybe it's just the same. Maybe it's the same process. And maybe that same thing is happening out on a, on a huge scale in the, in the parallel sort of structure that we've created for our country. You might be right about that. I, I have not been aware of there being violence between different sects of Judaism in that way. What I don't mean violence like Northern Ireland violence, I just mean like, you know, there are 
you know, if, if you're in the Orthodox Jewish community and you don't behave in certain ways, you're essentially excommunicated from that community. Yes. And, and within that community, there are different factions that argue, you know, vociferously against each other. But there's, there's also, you know, a reform and a conservative branches of Judaism in this country and, and other branches elsewhere, and they carry on a, a lively, shall we say, debate with each other, as we do in this country. But I don't think there's a history of them killing each other over it, unlike the uh, Protestant and Catholic thing that was happening in Europe. Yes, I don't think there's, there's, not, there's never been that kind of open, uh, that I know of, that kind of rebellion. But there has been, I think, parallel to our country, the sort of extreme level of anger or disagreement between people that occasionally spilled over into acts of limited but personal violence. Okay. Well, definitely um, vociferous arguing. The point is not necessarily whether there's been violence or not. The point is that we carry on in this country, in our culture wars, a very vociferous disagreement about how American culture should be, and, and, that, and that always comes back to, well, how is the Supreme Court going to rule on some law? Mm-hmm. And that is similar to the to the Jewish tradition of arguing about the Bible. I guess that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I guess what I've gotten hung up on is that I think that's healthy. I think those kind of arguments and debates are very healthy, but when they end up, you know, evolving or devolving into bloodshed and and murdering of each other, that's where it goes beyond that. Well, of course, I agree with you, but then I guess I would just say that, you know, we're a country of 360 million people. How many people have really been murdered over cultural issues in this country. Some, no doubt, there are some, um, but it's a pretty small number. I mean, it's, it's such a tiny number compared to the number of people who are killed by cancer or killed by suicide or killed by other things that it's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe if you look at it that way, it's, it, gets magnified by, it gets magnified by the media. But if, if you look at it that way, maybe we're just having a, a very vociferous conversation. Yeah. However, it seems as though we may be drifting into a period where it's getting heightened and where it may be increasing. Basically, I agree with you. I, I, was, I started this by trying to make a sort of, not exactly devil's advocate, but trying to frame it in a different way to, to try to see it as a continuation of that parallel. But I, yes, I, I worry about that, too. I worry about, I mean, I worry about social media, particularly Fox News, they profit by sowing division between people. Mm-hmm. And that's very specific and explicit in social media that, you know, you get more clicks by showing people things that get them agitated. And Fox News is just essentially an earlier version of that. And that strikes me as not so much having a conversation as a group just trying to profit, you know, from turning people against each other. Right. Being willing to use anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the profit part of it, too, is, is key. I mean, you know, this is a larger question and one I address in the book, but, but it's, it's a huge question for me. You know, now, culturally, in this country, we have made the profit motive the central cultural shared ethos that we all have. And so, you know, we don't have one religion, we don't have one, we don't really even have one language that much anymore, but we have this, everybody agrees that, you're supposed to try to make money. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but that's, our, that's our, essentially our shared cultural connection. And when you do that, money starts to just pervade every aspect of life in a way that, I mean, I hate to, you know, I hate to continually be bringing this back to the Bible since, 
that's not really um feel free but you know to me it's so reminiscent of the of the story of Moses going up on the mountain to get the 10 commandments and when he comes down the people are worshiping a golden calf and you know and Moses gets pissed off and throws down the tablets and breaks them and there you have you know however many 4000 years ago whenever that story was there you have a perfect model for what's happening to us right now where we've lost the ideals whatever ideals we could have that weren't money we've lost them and we've just thrown everything in in favor of making money being the objective of human life and i don't want to substitute a religious objective for human life but money as an objective for human life is destructive and and is going to continue to be destructive and so i don't know what the answer to that problem is but it seems to me that it's a huge problem yeah that was another part of the book that i found very interesting and relevant was you talk about salvation through commerce versus damnation through commerce yes i actually i like i think like a lot of my essays that one could have been developed a lot more but i really like that essay Mm -hmm. yeah and pointing out the the issues of sectarianism and the financialization of everything. Yep. I don't remember the specific things that you connected it with, but... Well, I just, you know, I've done a variety of different things, making furniture and building things, and now this renewable energy stuff, but I've just had an experience that I think a lot of people have, where I'm essentially conducting business, and on a, on a very small and personal scale, but I'm conducting business, and that means... I'm buying or selling something, and I just feel a sense of connection to the to the people that I'm trading with. You know, we're all doing something together, and it feels good. And it's not just about making money. It seems like it's about something larger than that. It's within the context of making money and the structure that we're all participating in is one of making money. And yet you have this feeling of, of connectedness and all working together. And that, to me, is a wonderful thing one of the best things I've experienced because it's, you know, it's co- I want to call it cooperation, but of course it's not necessarily cooperation. It's, it's individuals operating in a capitalistic economy, not a cooperative economy, but it feels very good. You know, it feels like you're doing something good and you're doing something bigger than just trying to make money. And yet that can quickly turn into another kind of experience, one that we all experience a lot with corporations where it's just about money, and they're just trying to get your money, and you're just trying to get something that you need from them, and it doesn't go any farther than that. And if they can get the money, that's all that matters to them. And if you can get what you need, that's all that matters to you. And I experience that, as every, every person does on a, on a personal level, too, often, frequently. Um, you know, on a, on a larger scale, that it's just about money way of looking at the world. That's, you know exemplified by Wall Street and the ridiculous things that go on there which where there's real money involved and it's really destructive to people's lives and you know the the great recession was a was a great example of that we may be about to you know we've got insane things going on in the financial markets now we may be about to go back into another situation like that where the speculative excesses just destroy everything that's good about society i don't know <laughs> it's worrying yeah and you you talk about it as you know, the ideal of commerce being the balancing of self-interest with actual care of other people and and the rest of society. Yeah, and I think you know this goes back to our earlier conversation. The objective of regulated capitalism should be promoting that um, those interactions, the interactions that benefit 
people by making them money and also benefit people by bringing them together. And we look at capitalism as though we need to regulate it in such a way that it makes the most money. And, you know, that's clearly destructive. It's destroying the planet, for one thing, but it, it destroys individuals, it destroys, it destroys communities. And I don't know, you know, I read a fair amount about economics. I don't want to get, like, you know, mushy, touchy-feely about it, but there's somehow there has to be a way of keeping the good parts of capitalism, the parts that have made innovation and invention and, you know, efficient markets and stuff, without having it just turn into this horrible system that just destroys the planet and destroys communities. But I don't see, I have never read anyone proposing a system that was based around the sort of ideals that I'm talking about somehow. And I don't even know what those ideals would be necessarily. Well, I think people have tried to do that, but it doesn't work because it it boils down to the people who are engaging in it and their own personal practices, because no system is perfect. It depends on the humanity of, of the people who are engaging in these systems. Well, that's a fair point, and you may be exactly right. When you say people have tried that and it doesn't work, you, you know, what you have to wonder is... Well, it's not, it... it's not so much that it doesn't work. It's that it's at the mercy of the intentions of the people who are engaging. So if a person has is fixated on self-interest at the expense of everybody else, they will find ways to manipulate the system. That's right. And then, so then the question to me is... Or get around it. How do you regulate... What are the regulations you impose on the system that benefit people having this, you know, for, for lack of a better term, salvation through commerce? What are the regulations of the system that encourage that and discourage damnation through commerce? And is it possible to structure the system in that way? Because it seems to me that we've structured the system for maximum growth and maximum wealth, and, and it's been enormously effective and successful at that. But it's, you know, it's, it's destroying us at this point. We know it's destroying the planet, and it's destroying communities. Is it possible to structure the system in a different way? But even when they have created regulations, the people who have the most money hire the best lawyers who are more able to argue the way around those regulations and restrictions, or else they just pay the fines that the That's restrictions right. impose upon them in ways that, that they can just laugh about because they're just paying a pittance on... So my question about that is whether, you know, to put it in a different context, when someone was trying to invent the internal combustion engine and they were saying, well, every time we, you know, every time we mix that gas with the oxygen and it blows the piston out and somebody else was saying, well, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to modify the structure or, or whether the first person, you know, trying to make transistors and the, well, it keeps overheating, we have to, you know, what, is it possible that we just need to put the kind of energy into figuring out how the structure works so that we get a structure that can make that work or is it just impossible? I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it, but it does seem to me that we have put most of our effort into just making the system produce as much as possible, not into making it produce things that, in, in a way that worked. Does that address your question at all? Because <laughs> um, I feel like it, I feel like it, I feel like what you want to say is, yeah, that's fine, but you're really not you're really not answering what I was what I was questioning. No, actually, I wasn't asking you or expecting you to address the question in any kind of way like that. What you're saying makes total sense to me, but it brings me to another part of your book, which I think is 
directly related to it, but may not appear to be directly related to it. But I think it's directly related to it. And that is, you write about, um, we live in a culture that's based on the ideals of equality, freedom of speech, and not being afraid, or at least the principle of not being afraid of new and different ideas, and also the risks of pursuing new ideas. Right. And I think it's directly related to this because this notion of pursuing capitalism to extremes could be considered an aspect of freedom, not so much of speech, but it's it's freedom of, you know, there's that, that line in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. And people have different ways of of approaching happiness or they, they have different I, different notions of what will make them happy. And it's an evolutionary process, I think. You know, we start out by thinking that things will make us happy. Right. And if something will make us happy, then more of that will make us happy. And I think that leads to this kind of unbridled capitalism or extreme capitalism or, or destructive capitalism that more for me is good and in order to have more for me I have to you know take from others or that kind of a thing where where it's a dog-eat-dog win-lose kind of a game um, so getting back to the ideals of freedom of speech and and not being afraid of new ideas and also dealing with the risks of of these ideas so you write about that in one of your essays yep. and I found that to be very insightful, and you say it's very brave to live with and to allow others to have the right to think and say whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, that's my interpretation of the First Amendment, is that that's a, that's a very risky but very, and very brave position to take, and, and it's paid off spectacularly for us in terms of, I mean, I don't know if people are happier than they used to be, but in terms of at least in terms of material wealth, it's paid off spectacularly, you know, to the extent that that's contributed to that. And, and I think, conveniences and technology. Yeah. But as you point out in the book, the example of nuclear yeah. bombs, the evolution of that technology and, and the risks of pursuing these ideas. So there's always risks to this, but, but we have to live with those risks, don't we? We do. I mean, I don't think there's, and there's no turning back. And I, as I mentioned it in that essay, you think about how many generations of ancient Egyptians had almost identical lives where, you know, each generation would, would live essentially the same way as the previous generation had lived, and the technology didn't change, and the government didn't change. And that's so different from the way we live. We're just, you know, things are changing all the time because we're not afraid of new ideas. You know, for animals, they take whatever the environment hands out to them, and if the environment is manipulated or changed by human beings, they have to adapt to that. But they don't really have new ideas, or at least very rarely, that, that affect their lives. They just live. But we're different, and we're, we're having these new ideas all the time, and that's part of human, you know, that's how we became human and learned to use fire and invent wheels. But we also have this motivation in history to be afraid of these new ideas, and then along come the founders of our country, and they institute this principle that will let you but we'll let you have new ideas. You can say your new idea. And especially within the context of religion, which is some ways is a thing people hold most dear, like what is the point of life? And 
they allow people to say whatever they think. That's crazy. I mean, it's just like, think about how f***ing crazy that was when it happened. No, we're just going to we're going to let people worship whatever they want for all of human history. People have been people have been killing the other people who believe different things than they believed, and all along come these these people who are like, "No, we'll just we'll let you believe whatever the hell you want." And I realized that at the time that it happened, it was hardly as carefree as I'm saying it. But when you think about the intellectual leap that that is, it's really extraordinary. Yes. But at the same time, even with that idea, it's still allowing people to cultivate the ideas of going to war against people who have different ideas. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a mixed bag. Well, it's not restricted. It's not judgmental. It's not saying, you, you can't, I mean, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to say, mm-hmm. we'll allow you to have any idea, you can't, as soon as you start saying, well, we'll only allow you to have ideas that are in accordance with our ideas or our God or, or our, ideo- our ideology, whatever, as soon as you start limiting it, of course, you've limited it. It's, it doesn't preclude the bad or the good. That's why it's so brave. And, 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 and that's why, I think this is key, that's why it's so optimistic, because the core of that belief is that we're good, humans are good, if we allow the mass of ourselves to express our ideas, that will be better than if we try to restrict ourselves. And just think about that, think about that concept that we're good, that fundamentally our nature is good, because when you think that those, most of those founders were, if not Christian, they were certainly raised in a Christian tradition, and the Christian tradition is explicitly, you're wrong, you're a sinner, you're, you're, you're imperfect, you're, you're flawed. Just think about that, you know, the contrast between those two approaches. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to attribute that idea that basically we must be good because it'll be, basically it'll all work out if we, if we allow ideas. It certainly wasn't a Christian concept, so was that a Native American idea? Was that just something, I don't know, it's it's fascinating. That's a fascinating question to me. Yeah, it made me reflect back on the way my father, you know, respecting the way my father related to me and allowing me the space to make my own mistakes. Exactly the same, yes. Yeah, and also, you know, considering the consequences of some of our new ideas, which are putting our, our lives and the fate of humanity at risk, I agree with you. I don't think we can we can legislate what's good and what's bad. We have to learn. We have to make our mistakes, and we have to learn from them. And whether we survive or not uh, is based upon whether we are successful at learning yeah. those lessons. And and I think we have to trust, or we have to. Well, we don't have to, but I think we don't really have any other reasonable option than to trust in the innate goodness and our ability to learn from our mistakes in order to to survive or to or to evolve well i don't know if we have another choice or not lots of the muslim traditions lots of the christian traditions would certainly disagree with you they'd say no there's there's a right way to live it's written down in a book and we're the we're the people who know how to interpret that book and here's how you have to live and so personally you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. But I think in the course of human history, it's been more true for more people that they believed that there was a certain right way to do it, and there were certain special people who could tell them what the right way to do it was, and that that's the way most of human history has been. So I think that what we've done in this country, you know, by ideology, not, not always in practice, certainly, but by ideology, is really, I mean, it is a new experiment in human history. And obviously, we've been 
phenomenally successful with it in terms of the material wealth we've created and then in terms of the control it's given us over other people in the world. And so lots of other people have adopted in various ways that same ideology. But I do think it's still a kind of rare and unusual experiment in, in the history of humanity, and it may destroy us, too, like you say. We don't know how it works out. Yeah, exactly. And you have to distinguish between we have to regulate how people act. That's one thing we do. You know, you can't murder people. You can, there are things you can't do. There are lots of roles for regulation. What there's not a role for is telling people how to think. We say, in order for us to all get along and share this land and these materials and these other things that we have, we come up with rules, just like you have rules for a game. These are the rules for the game. But we don't limit someone from talking about, discussing, proposing different rules and different ideas about how the whole thing should work. You can't allow someone to impose their rules on someone else. We all have to live under, you know, we have to live under a nation of laws. That's, that's key to everybody getting along, and the, and the more people there are, the more laws there have to be, and the more, more tightly people are packed together. But to have this concept also embodied there that we're not going to restrict you from thinking or talking about or suggesting basically anything you want to, you know, I mean, even lots of, you know, Western democratic countries do somewhat regulate what you can say. I mean, there are things you can't discuss, I believe, in Germany about Nazism. You know, those aren't discussions you're permitted to have. You know, and, and here, you know, we've taken this wide open view of the world. If you want to promote Nazi ideas, you're free to do that in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or or atheist ideas, or whatever whatever the ideas, communist ideas, whatever the ideas are that are antithetical to the current culture, you're still free to discuss those and openly share them with people. That's kind of extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And sort of in relation to that, you mentioned something about Trump as a kind of inoculation. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I <laughs> I know that was kind of funny. I mentioned that in, when I wrote that. I think in the conclusion, maybe, and I wrote that. Just as the whole COVID thing was happening, and I wasn't quite aware that it was starting as exactly as I wrote that. I don't know. Trump was scary to me, and he was the example of, you know, an authoritarian who takes control and says, I alone can do this. I alone can run the country. And lots of people found that appealing. And yet, he wasn't a true authoritarian. He was, you know, lots of people like Saddam Hussein, Putin maybe to some extent, Castro, probably. You know, a lot of people who became authoritarians actually had moments in their lives where they took immense personal risk and and led groups of people in some sort of rebellion. You know, Donald Trump has none of that. <laughs> you know, he, did, he wasn't a real, you know, revolutionary in any sense. He was just a guy, he was just a salesman who saw an opportunity. But he was a salesman who saw how appealing an authoritarian could be to people. And so in that way, I hope he was kind of like an inoculation against an authoritarian because he was like an authoritarian without the without the real abilities of an authoritarian. If he'd been like think about it in this context, if Donald Trump had gotten elected and had used the power of the presidency to flaunt laws and just impose things that he wanted to do, which which he you know he, he showed us to a great extent how how capable a president is of doing things like that. If he had used those powers to fix the roads. Uh, you know, fix the healthcare system, bring high-speed internet to everybody, you know, the dude would have gotten elected forever. But thank God he didn't. Thank God he wasn't. You know, one of the reasons Putin is, 
he's no longer popular in Russia at all. But one of the reasons he was popular for a while is that he took over in a chaotic situation and made sure that everybody got fed. And same, I think the same is true in um, North Korea. Um, you know, that the Kim Jong-un, the, his family, you know, they, North Korea had more rapid economic growth in the first, I can't remember what the time frame is, 20 years of, it, of the country, 30 years of the country, than South Korea did. And lots of people there still remember that, that, you know, that they went from starvation to fairly rapid economic growth. And, you know, obviously that's turned into a horrible nightmare. But, but my point is that the authoritarians that manage to continue ruling as authoritarians usually have some competency at delivering a better life for people. And Trump had none of that. He had the trappings of an authoritarian without any of the ability to deliver the results. Thank goodness. That's why he was in inoculation, because if he had actually delivered the results, we've discovered how many people would have been completely happy to throw away the Constitution in favor of the results of having an authoritarian lead us. But fortunately, thank like I, I toy with the idea of sometimes writing, a, like writing an essay called, you know, Donald Trump, American Hero, because we're so lucky that that's the authoritarian we got, a fake authoritarian. Now, who knows what the future is, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, good point about the future, because all the real, all the competent wannabe authoritarians out there just witnessed from Trump how to do it. So who knows what, who knows what's coming next? Yes, yes. <laughs> but there again, you know, I find it out a certain, a certain amount of optimism, too, for America, because here we have this dysfunctional system, and it's been dysfunctional for years, and, and people want to change. You know, they wanted to change back to Ross Perot and and John Anderson, who ran for president, and, and Howard Dean to some extent, and Bernie Sanders in his runs for president. You know, people want a change. And along comes this guy who's intellectual and black and named Barack Hussein Obama, and this country votes for him, and they elect him twice, and he runs on a platform of hope and change. And he really, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for him, but he really doesn't change very much. And so then people are like, all right, fuck it, if that's not going to change things, you know, let's try, let's try lunatic. Um, and, so, and so they try that, and it doesn't really work. And so now it's kind of, well, let's, let's go back to the, you know, the old tried and true status quo and kind of catch our breath here and figure out what's next. You know, it, it almost seems like on a, on a metal level, the, maybe democracy really is working, and it's hunting for something that'll, that'll actually, you know, correct a system that's clearly, you know, clearly in need of help. Perhaps. I'm terribly dissatisfied with it, but what can little old me do about it? I, you know, on some level, we're all along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, you, you cast your vote, you do what you can, you're insignificant, you know, on this little rock, and, and you see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, yes, I am, the people who know me do not describe me as an optimistic or sunny personality, but actually... I do have, I, I, I do on some level feel optimism, so. On a deeper level, yeah. Uh, on a deeper level, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I clearly get that. Yeah. And you do pay lip service to, to your grim nature, but. Right. I, I don't really see you as being grim, but I can totally understand that because I also grew up with a lot of grimness. So, yeah. I, I recognize that. And the world is kind of grim, but it's also kind of beautiful and kind of fun. And so, I mean, I'm glad that came out in the book because because you never know when you write something what other people, you never know how it's going to hit other people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we tend to see ourselves in 
what we read or and what we experience. Well, that could very well be that it's really it really just ends up being a reflection of the reader more than the more than the writer. I don't know. But you you put so much in the book for us to reflect on. I certainly tried to. I'm sure I I'm sure I failed at this at points, but I tried whenever I was writing something. If I was like, this is this is obvious, and people have heard it a million times, then I was like, you know, why why bother? Try to put in things that are going to be at least on some level a little bit new or unusual for someone to read about. And and I mean, I think that's you know the original intention of the book for my kids. There's no there's no point in telling your kids the shit that they already know. So try to tell them the things that you've learned that seem a little bit unique to you, and maybe they'll be beneficial to them or, or to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you, you were remarkably successful with this book. Well, I hope so. Now, now I have to figure out how to market it, which I, once I got it written, I, I kind of lost interest in the, the rest of the process. Yeah, I, I can't help you with that. Yeah, I know. I characterize myself as, as someone who couldn't sell water to somebody in the desert. Exactly, exactly. I, <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I'm making some small efforts, but, but um, yeah. Well, the book, for all of you out there with money and, and time to read, it's Concrete and Culture by Robbie Porter, one of our local heroes. It's on Amazon. You can get it from, from Evil Amazon. But I'm sure you can, you can get it from a, a nicer, lo- more local venue. Well, I'm trying to... I'm, I, I, you can't, actually, yet, but really? I'm trying to work that out, trying to get it to Bear Pond. I think I actually have... They're looking at a copy right now. But they could order it from you. They, oh, they could definitely order it from us. And I, the way I priced it on Amazon at 16 bucks, I think Amazon will let you order author copies at a reduced price. So I think I can get them to Bear Pond for 8 bucks, and then they can mark them up to 16 so they can sell them for twice the cost I can sell them to them for and not be undersold by Amazon. At least that was my, that was my goal in setting the pricing there. Mm-hmm. For those who are still going out shopping in this crazy well, that's world. Well, that's the other thing. You know, I, just about the time I published this, the whole world changed. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking with it's you. It's been great talking to you, Tony. Thank you so much. I hope this is I hope it's not too convoluted. Oh, no, this is great. It's been a pleasure. Cool. This has been a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Thank you. All Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. And that was Robbie Porter. He's a local builder, craftsperson, and he's the author of this book that we've been sort of talking about, Concrete and Culture, a book of essays. Today's show is brought to you by Jiffy John Outhouses. Now you all out there, give a listen to this. For a limited time only, you can order your own tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse. The outhouse that puts the fun back in your natural functions. Yes, the good outhouse is an asset to any family. So listen to these special features that tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse has to offer. Sturdy plywood construction, non-stoop walk-in door, solid steel bolt latch, bronze coat hook, Secret peekaboo peephole, exciting swirling wood grain and knot holes to study while sitting in there, traditional stars and moon ventilator cut away up there in the rooftop, and a year's supply of glossy, authentic Sears and Roebuck catalogs. And of course, most important of all, three convenient tailor-made Jiffy John outhouse holes. 
Yes, this popular family three-seater can be yours if you act without delay. But first, remember, you must specify your size and shape. This is important for the utmost in comfort and long hours of natural pleasure. So right now, sit yourself down with a pen and pencil and draw around your butt. Some of you may prefer to send an ink imprint, and that'll do just about as well. That's family three-seater tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse, Crescent Moon, Tennessee. Like Jiffy John says, put that fun back in your natural country functions. The devil is waiting for me.